Kevin, welcome to Forward Guidance. Great to be with you today, Jack. So you're Kevin Muir of Macro Tourist. Got a lot of ideas about inflation, bond yields, the bear market that we've had that that might be over. Kevin, we're recording on Friday, December 10th. The standard way I'd start this podcast is with the explosive 39-year high of uh, 6.8% yearly inflation. We're going to get into that, of course, but I actually want to throw a little bit of a curveball, start with something that's incredibly exciting to me, very interesting, and that is a trade that you've been following, which is going long gold, going short Bitcoin. That trade would have been a widowmaker if you had started it a year and a half ago, but you started it a little over a month ago. Tell us why you've put on that trade um, and just the reasons that you put it on. I am a little bit of a long-term Bitcoin skeptic, so you have to um, take this with a huge grain of salt. Um, although I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to get involved at Bitcoin when it was $5 uh, on the way up, and I actually mined the Bitcoin and, uh, and did arbitrage between exchanges, I had given up on it when it went from uh, 2000 back to $200, and since then I've been... Although I've kind of nibbled every now and then on the long side, on the whole, I've been a skeptic about whether um, it has any viable uh, kind of staying power. And, uh, you know, everyone knows the kind of pros and cons, so let's not discuss that too much because, the, you know, people are tired of hearing about that. In terms of what's new, I look at the recent developments in terms of the amount of leverage in the Bitcoin universe or the crypto universe in general. And it scares me. I'm concerned that increasingly there is more and more leverage. It's becoming like a currency in its own right. And a currency left to its own devices will create credit. And uh, that is what's happening. And uh, although I am not going to say 100% that we're going to have a crash and that we're going to you know, collapse, I do believe that it's kind of increasingly possible that this is going to happen. Um, first of all, if you, even if you just look at Bitcoin over the last decade, we've had three declines of 80% or more. So I think for the crypto community, they, they fully expect that sort of volatility. I think it's, uh, it's here. It's, uh, I think it started, the correction started, and I think the mistake is going to be to get bullish too early. And I think that we're going to most likely have our fourth decline of that kind of magnitude in the way that I like expressing it is by buying gold on one side and shorting Bitcoin on the other. And why specifically that pair trade? Gold and Bitcoin are often compared to each other. Bitcoin is you know, often referred to as digital gold. And the alpha has clearly been in the opposite of, of your trade. You know, Going long Bitcoin and short gold would have been a phenomenal trade over the past year and a half. Why now are you saying that gold will outperform well, Bitcoin? Well, to some extent, I, I do believe that they are used to hedge the same purpose. And I... And, and, I also believe that gold has struggled over the last year, partly because so much interest has gone into Bitcoin and in the crypto world. And so for me, it was just kind of a pure way of playing inflation or worries about debasement. And I just think on a relative basis that we're going to see uh, a, a kind of a return to gold, a return to the asset that's existed for many a millennia, uh, that's been a, a kind of a guarantor of, of purchasing power and I know that a lot of people call me the old man yelling at the cloud and, you know, I don't get it and, uh, and I, I don't understand how this is a new world. Could be. Um, I have seen a lot of markets in my day. I've seen a lot of bull markets that have been, people have been convinced that it's a new era and it never is. Um, I just think that it's extended. And to me, the kind of 
purest way to play it instead of just being outright short, you know, Bitcoin is to be gold, long gold on the other side. Lots of reasons I believe that we're going to see more central bank buying when it comes to gold. I think that uh, we're going to see a Federal Reserve that probably isn't as hawkish as it is priced in. And combine that with the year-end effect that we've seen in terms of a lot of people that have been long gold and it has been such a terrible investment puking it out. I just think the timing works for being long gold on the other side. You have an analogy where you compare Bitcoin to an imaginary uh, um, uh, currency called a tusk buck. <laughs> what is a tusk buck and uh, how does the, the analogy uh, um, play out specifically with the reference to the uh, the psychology and the money market fund. So I, I recently wrote this piece and it was um, kind of trying to explain what I see as the risks um, to the crypto universe. And I, I kind of, instead of talking about crypto, I talked about uh, a test bus, uh, Tusk Buck, which is in essence uh, this fictionary character called Elon Tusk, and uh, the Rick and Morty fans are going to very quickly know who that is. Um, but this fictional character creates a currency so that he can uh, you know, use it when he goes to Mars, when he retires on Mars in five years. And I go through the logic of what, you know, how it develops and why it works. And then ultimately I get to this point where I say that, you know, that uh, people want something that is more uh, stable, that is more uh, guaranteed to track the U.S. dollar. So they create what they call the Tusk Money Market Fund. And if you read between the lines, I'm in essence talking about Tether, which is a stable coin that, uh, that is a lot of... Um, kind of worries from some of the skeptics. And I go through and, and talk about how the fact that stable coins, if they are not backed and they are creating credit by in essence, issuing more of them than the underlying assets are introducing leverage to the system. And ultimately what I believe is happening is that we are getting an increasingly large asset base on less and less equity. So the asset base, which is all of cryptocurrencies, which has gone up to, what, $3 trillion a month ago, that, that asset ba the base is becoming on less and less equity. And when I think about all the major crises in the kind of, that I've experienced in my career, inevitably the use of leverage is kind of a common theme that comes through. Without leverage, you don't get that forced liquidation. You don't get the crazy selling. And what, so, you know, I can't figure out how much leverage there is in the crypto sy system. Maybe I'm worried about nothing. But then again, I kind of, to me, it feels a lot like the real estate bubble of 2005 when a lot of people thought that there was, you know, that there wasn't anything to worry about. They, we used to hear things about how prices can't go down on a national basis and, and a lot of calculators didn't even have a negative input for, for their, the CDOs and stuff that they were pricing out. And whenever I hear those sorts of things, my antenna goes off. And I think we're going to find out that when the tide goes out, that there was a lot of people doing a lot of crazy things when it came to leverage. And I'm worried about it. And, uh, and I think the tether or the, you know, the Musk, uh, the Tusk story, the Tusk uh, money market fund will prove to be uh, maybe at the, uh, the center of this. And, and uh, I'm actually kind of shocked when I talk to crypto players and they all tell me 
when I asked them about Tether and they say, oh yeah, everyone knows it's a fraud and it's no big deal. And I said, this is a $70 billion fund that you're just writing off as at least partly fraudulent. Like, how, how are you not worried about this? And it, and, it, and it kind of just shocks me, the complacency that I'm seeing on in that, in that space. Kevin, would you say that an apt analogy for Tether would be commercial banks? How, when commercial banks, they can create money, they just credit your account and suddenly you have a, a deposit. Can, can Tether sort of just be created with, you know, with, the, with the touch of a button, would you say? Well, I, I do believe that's a possibility. And at the very least, there's all sorts of exchanges creating, uh, creating credit. When you go and deposit, you know, a hundred grand of, of, of ether or whatever it is at, at an exchange, they'll lend you against that. So that is in essence creating, um, more demand for underlying crypto than exists. So whether it's tether only or a combination of factors, whatever it is, I do believe that there's more and more, um, leveraged uh, buying, pushing it up. And I do think it's an apt analogy to talk about private banks and, or commercial banks. And I'll, I'll hear all sorts of things about how, oh, you know, the, the government makes money out of fiat and that's no different than Tether. And they'll talk about all of the um, kind of, let, let's just say, um, how banks will make money out of fiat and, and that's no different than Tether. The difference being is that in the past, we've experienced this. If you go back and look at the 1800s, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, we had a private banking system that went and created all sorts of money. There, it was happening all the time. And the, the crypto enthusiasts, when they say that, they are not wrong. When they, when they compare it and say there is no difference between a bank and, uh, and crypto um, credit creation. But the difference is that currently there's all sorts of regulations and there's a backstop with the Federal Reserve. And if you go back to the 1800s and the, and the early 1900s, there used to be going into the, uh, into the um, Great Depression. I can't remember what the number is, but I think it was like something like 10,000 banks existed. And within five years, we were down to 5,000 banks. And there was a massive credit contraction that we experienced. So um, one of the things is when you have private credit creation with no backstop, you have an ability to run for it to run wild, but you also have it for the ability for it to go the other way. And that is what scares me. And, uh, and I just want them, you know, the, the crypto enthusiasts when, to know they're not wrong. They are correct, but, but they, they're using the wrong analogy. They're using an analogy based upon today's system, and they should be using an analogy based upon the true freewheeling markets of the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Yeah, not to mention that you know you write, and I would agree with you, that credit is not inherently evil. Leverage is not inherently bad. But there is something about the uh, lending in crypto that is somewhat antithetical to the hard money advocates of, of, of the Bitcoin people. Right. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, because a lot of the, the original reason that they went into it was because they were frustrated about QE and they were frustrated about the Fed printing all these things. I actually I have a, a great chart that, that kind of makes me laugh because... If you look at the um, Federal Reserve's balance sheet, you'll hear all the crypto you know, folks screaming and bitching about, the, about how large it is. And then you look at it and, and the crypto world is now $3 trillion, which is almost a third of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And yeah, maybe it should be that high. And maybe you know, this, is, this is part of the movement from fiat to crypto. 
But I, I think I'd just like to remind people that when you live in our society, you're forced to pay uh, your taxes in U.S. dollars. You're forced to transact in U.S. dollars. There's a reason for that to exist. And until we change that, um, we're going to find that there's always a demand for those U.S. dollars for those activities, whereas I'm not as convinced that there's as much a demand for the crypto uh, currency as they, as they claim. By the way, Jack, you're going to get me in all sorts of trouble with all the crypto enthusiasts. I just, I just, Kevin, you're getting me in trouble. <laughs> I'm just going to say, listen, you guys have been right. It, you've, you've nailed it. It's been a great trade. Um, and one of the things is that I, I just want to highlight is that I am a trader. And I don't get married. It's not a religion to me. It's not something that I feel that is, is something that's going to make or break me. I'm forced to deal with possibilities of different prices moving all over, all over the place all the time. And, uh, you know, I could be wrong and I'll be the first to say I'm wrong and I'll drive on and do another trade. So just make sure that when you uh, uh, write me or, or, you know, tweet to me telling me that I'm wrong about crypto, you very well could be right. I don't feel that strongly about it. Yes. And please be polite to Kevin when you, when you reach out into the DMs and the emails. Kevin, one peril of short selling is that the most money that you can make is 100 percent right. uh, in your return, whereas your losses are theoretically uh, uh, unlimited. So it, you get your short convexity in a sense. And there's hardly an asset I can think of that would be more inclined for that to be a disadvantage when shorting than Bitcoin. The most you can make is 100%. But Bitcoin, if anything, Kevin, and, and you, you must admit, has shown it is an asset that can go up. Oh, uh, It can yeah. go up 100% in a year, 200% in a year. So how are you sort of weighing that risk, given that it seems like it's an extremely uh, risky trade. You know, do you, do you have stops? What's what's your, sort of your price? I'm I'm sizing it appropriately so that I can sit through some pain. I it's it's a it's a hundred vol asset. You need to be aware that when you have a hundred vol asset, that you're going to have rips of uh, 10, 20, 30 percent. And if you're not prepared to sit through those, you shouldn't be trading it. Um, one of the things I will say though, Jack, about your comment is that. When everyone is scared of something, that's often the best time to do something. I've been writing my letter for a long, long time. Uh, for a while, I did it for free, and I used to go and it used to get picked up by all sorts of different um, uh, new uh, kind of financial news sites, and, and so I get a lot of comments. And I'll tell you something that after watching my different calls throughout this period, the more people disagreed with them, the more sure I was it was going to work. And I know that seems kind of, I, I don't want it to sound arrogant because it's not. And, you know, I, uh, my tagline is all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. That's my kind of joke is that, and I, I was laughing with someone the other day that I keep finding new ways to lose money. So I, I completely have a lot of respect for anyone in this game because, you know, the reality is you're going to be wrong lots. And, and, um, Stanley Druckenmiller talked about how his win loss ratio was 60% wins, 40% losses. I saw Stephen Cohen talk about how he was 55, uh, 45. And these are the greatest traders around. So me, I'm going to be worse than that. So I'm going to get a lot wrong. But having said that, when I wrote something and I had everyone agree with me, it felt great. It was a terrific thing. A lot of people agreed with me. Those trades were often the worst trades. The best trades were the ones that I felt sick to my stomach. I was kind of like scared to do it. I was worried about the blowback. I was worried about people would call me an idiot for fading this. 
And when I look at Bitcoin right now, it sure feels like one of those times that it, it kind of, nobody wants to short it. Nobody, you know, they've been burned for the last how many years. It feels to me that everyone has given up. There's very few people that are willing to go out and, and talk badly about it. It's that sort of environment that you see that end up being the best trades. I think it's just me and Nassim Taleb that are, are, are sticking to our bearishness. Kevin, why is it that right now you think is the best time to short Bitcoin? It seems to me on the level of frothiness where people are, are ebullient about Bitcoin and crypto now, but... It seems you know slightly less than January and February and December of, of last year. What is it about now? And then also, how are you putting on the trade? Shorting futures, yeah. buying put options. So, so one of the things that I do believe is that it's more than just Bitcoin that I'm that I'm negative on. And maybe we could just transition to the whole um, meme stocks, Tesla, um, Ark, the whole sphere of speculative assets. I believe that we've had a year and a half ever since COVID of these things going straight up and that a lot of these charts are now broken. And we've seen selling and the rallies are getting sold. They're increasingly going down. And it's one of those things that it's, uh, you're, you're correct that it, it's been a lot more bullish at different at, at previous points. There was, you know, even let's just take Tesla, which is kind of uh, the poster child of, of a speculative uh, new era economy stock. It was a lot more bullish a year, uh, a month ago than it is today. So why shorting it today is better than maybe a month ago is because its stock is starting to agree with you. The, the price action is starting to agree with you. A month ago, it was still going up. You didn't know where it was going to stop. The volatility was through the roof. It was a lot scarier trade back then. Yeah, I was an idiot. I was probably shorting it anyways. But the reality is that it's probably a better short today when it's down 200 bucks off the highs than it was a month ago on the way up as it screamed higher. Mm. And then how are you putting on the trade? Shorting futures? So I do a combination of things. I, I One of the trades that I like doing also is I short um, Mr. Um, the MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy trades at a premium to the underlying assets of Bitcoins that it owns. Different people have different ways of pricing out how much of a premium it is. There's about $2.2 billion of debt outstanding on that. And then if you look at it, I kind of valued the underlying business that before Sailor went and started doing Bitcoins at 1.4. That was the value that it was priced at before he started going into Bitcoin. So I don't know, let's call it, maybe it's gone up a little bit. To me, it feels like the debt's roughly worth the equity of whatever the business is left. And then we're le then you can price out the Bitcoin in there. And if you look, the Bitcoin, he was actually at a big premium and Saylor realized this as well. He was doing what's known as an at-the-market uh, issue offering, which is, means that he was out in the market issuing shares, selling directly on the exchange, new issue shares. With those uh, shares, he was buying um, underlying Bitcoin. That's a great trade for him. It's a great trade for MicroStrategy holders because it's increasingly the, it's increasing the book value of the company because they're in essence issuing um, shares at a premium. The trouble is that eventually, I, I think this will be a situation like GBTC. If you remember GBTC, it was at one point a premium to the underlying NAV as well, and then as it became 
easier for other uh, institutional and retail clients to buy something, uh, buy Bitcoin and other methods that went to a discount. So ultimately, I'm shorting uh, MicroStrategy because I think that I'm getting a little bit extra juice um, in terms of it trading at a premium to NAV and that I, I expect it to go at to an eventual discount. So uh, I believe shorting MSTR is a great way of uh, playing from the short side of Bitcoin. I, I do a combination of factor of different strategies. It might be short outright. It might be selling calls. It might be selling call spreads, buying put spreads. There's a whole bunch of different ways to play it. I also, um, there's some great ETFs now. There's Bito, B-I-T-O. Here in Canada, where I'm Canadian, we have btcc.b uh, and, and the futures as well. So I, there are a variety of different ways to play it. I will hop around and do different trades and depending on how I feel about things. But one of the, the, the things I just like to stress is that my letter and, and, and what I talk about is more idea generation. And I believe that every trader has their own risk preferences and they should ultimately choose what's best for them and handle it, um, you know, how they best see fit. Kevin, now I want to take a detour. Let's talk about the you can't call it a bear market, but the drastic sell-offs in particular stocks that really began on the day after Thanksgiving. You had seen some signs of it with stocks like Beyond Meat and Chegg and other previous high-flying growth darlings falling 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%. But it really uh, sort of came into the macro world uh, on that uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And of course, that was related to Omicron. And later, Powell said something that the markets didn't like. Is there anything that you particularly note about the stocks that have gone down a lot? You said there's a similarity between Tesla, uh, um, ARK. Uh, you, you said Bitcoin as well. Well, what do all those things um, have in particular? And then you know, where do you think that all this thing is headed? So I do believe that a bear market has started in uh, these junky speculative names. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call it. I, I've uh, been saying this for a while, that we're going to get a return to more traditional type stocks. We're going to see less of the AMCs and GMEs and all these other things going up. Um, I think all you have to do is look at all the SPACs. You know, you look at the Chamath portfolio and think back. Chamath was a was a retail and hedge fund darling in the summer as he was promoting his stocks. And go look at all of his stocks since then. They've been melting. And I suspect that will continue. I think it's a good thing because when I look at what was happening, it was making a, you know a travesty out of a lot of financial markets. And I know there's lots of people that love talking about the apes won't leave AMC and uh, and the GME. They really stuck it to the hedge funds. And I just taking a, a security to a price that makes no sense on a fundamental basis and leaving it there and um, encouraging that behavior is is not what markets are about and i'm not trying to say that young people shouldn't get involved but i think they should be really worried about going and and trying to use cornering hedge funds as a long-term strategy yeah there's no doubt about it some hedge funds played on the short side too much and it was a great trade for them to squeeze uh, the gme holders completely get that but it became, uh, it took on its life of its own that was divorced from reality. And I blame a lot of the people that were in positions of power that should have known better. 
Elon Musk, you know, tweeted out on GME and encouraged it. Chamath uh, did the same. This wasn't power to the people. This was um, them encouraging a speculative frenzy. And when I think about uh, the investment horizon, I think that these stocks are going to have a bear market that just melts and melts and melts and melts. And people are going to be, you know, extremely disappointed um, a year from now when they wake up and this portfolio of, of meme stocks is significantly lower. And uh, that, that's how I feel about it. Now, in terms of what caused it and why we had um, this Thanksgiving kind of start, my belief is that it, um, although there was some bad news with Omicron, and although the Powell has recently gotten much, well, not much, I would say relatively more hawkish, I think that that is more of an excuse than people think as, a, as, as kind of the reason why we went down. If we had had a situation where uh, speculators and hedge funds were not over their skis and too long, then I think the market could have handled that news. Yet the, the reality was that they were too long. They did have too many of these speculative names in their portfolio. And we saw um, a huge, what they call degrossing. And degrossing means that hedge funds were kind of uh, reducing both the long and short side of their portfolios. Now you might say, why did you say degrossing? Like why not just say selling? Yes, hedge funds lean long in terms of risk, but a lot of times what they'll do is they'll be long a basket of stocks and then they'll be short uh, something on the other side so that they might be long 180% and short, um, let's say 90%, sort of for a net long of 90%. And so what they'll do is they'll take both sides down. And so you'll see stocks that they're long going down and then stocks that they're short going up. And I contend that's one of the reasons why we saw Apple go up. Apple is hitting new highs and we had days and I think there was a day, it might've been Thursday or, or, you know, Thursday, you guys were closed, but Friday, we might've had a situation where the S and P closed on the lows of the day and Apple closed up on the highs of the day. And the reality is that a lot of these hedge funds are just getting what's known as back to neutral. And they're going back to a position where they're not long as much crap and they're not long as, as many of these, um, kind of speculative names and they're covering. The other thing I'll say, Jack, is there's two other um, uh, issues. One of them is that everyone remembered 2018. And 2018 was this, uh, Powell said we're a long way from neutral and we had this huge sell-off going into it. And what they remembered was that they lost their bonuses in the last, last month. And so a lot of these um, money managers and these portfolio managers, they've just thrown in the towel. And I, and I do believe that that's what we saw this month, uh, in, and especially it accelerated after Thanksgiving, was a lot of these um, portfolio managers getting back to neutral, getting uh, flat as much as they could. And that in, entailed selling these stocks that they were overweight and buying the stocks that they were underweight. And... Uh, and I, I think it's actually setting up for a great situation going into the new year because uh, these, a lot of these hedge funds are light on risk. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we had a, a big rally. And, in, and I especially think we, you know, that we're going to get a big rally in the names that they were selling. They were just like, just get it off the sheets. It's been a loser all year. And um, two uh, kind of uh, uh, themes that you might want to look at on that side were the pot stocks, the cannabis stocks which have been terrible performers, and the gold stocks. 
anyone that's been long any of these have been selling and they finally just said, that's it, get me out. And so I think that these are setting up for great tax loss selling uh, opportunities. Mm. Uh, I'm glad you, you talked about Apple. If you want to be a fund manager, you want to generate alpha. And because Apple is what, five, six, seven percent of the S&P 500, you sort of have to be underweight Apple to be long, to be overweight something else. Right. Because, you know, you can't be overweight Apple because pe people are paying you lots of money. You can't just you can't just buy Apple. Um, so that's really interesting. The stocks that have been selling off, you've called them uh, maybe junk, a little speculative. I think in your in your uh, letter, you were very curt. You said the bull market in crap is over. <laughs> what is crap to you? Is it hyper growth stocks? Is it stocks that don't have revenue, stocks that don't have? Just tell us what sort of companies. And you know, I'd, I'd love some examples. Well, I'll name, uh, you know, uh, almost all the Chamath stocks are, are crap. Almost all of ARC stocks are crap. We see any of the meme stocks like GME, AMC, all those sorts of uh, speculative names are crap. A lot of the EVs, if they're not like electric vehicles, if they're not crap, they're priced for perfection. Uh, I saw somewhere the other day that if GME, uh, GM floated their uh, autonomous driving uh, uh, kind of division at the same uh, at a similar uh, kind of valuation that the these other stocks are achieving, you would get all of the rest of GM, GM for free because the reality is that they're not pricing boring old GM as exciting as they're pricing these new companies. Um, so all those stocks I consider crap. And and one thing I would like to kind of highlight that that going forward in terms of what I think is the biggest risk in 2022. And Jack, I haven't written about this recently so you, yet, so you're going to, you have a little sneak peek. We have increasingly uh, investment managers hiding in the top six stocks. And those top six stocks, you know, the, the Microsofts, Googles, Facebook, um, Amazon, all those names have been terrific, terrific performers. And they've been that way for years. And, um, if you haven't owned them, you've gotten crushed. And I think that's another reason Apple has gone up in this last little while is that as people got scared, they just said, I'm going to go back to these, to these six names. And they, and they started buying those, those, the fangs in, in essence. Right. And I believe that those stocks, although I wouldn't call them crap, I believe that they're priced for perfection. And that the consensus, consensus narrative is that they will continue to outperform for a long time. And I, I have a friend who, who does a lot of kind of analytical work and he was going through the 13 D's. He goes it by hand and he just reads all the 13 D's where, which is where the hedge funds and other portfolio managers explain, or I mean, sorry, disclose what they bought. And he was telling me, he said, Kev, I can't believe how much of the thing these guys keep buying and they're just buying it and buying it and buying it. And I, I have another pal that's this hedge fund manager that's, that's been around and, and he's a lot smarter than me and he's a lot more plugged in. And he was explaining to me that all of the traders at the Fido's and the Janice's and all these big money managers, all the, all the, sorry, all the portfolio managers at these places, they're all 35 years old or, you know, around there and they've been managing money for 10 years and they've only seen one market. 
They've all come come of age and gotten their or there were their kind of stripes after the great financial crisis. And the best thing to own has been these fangs. And so they're all overweight. And when I look at opportunities in 2022, I suspect that 2022 will be the year the real economy stocks come back and that finally the fangs underperform. So when I say real economy stocks, what do I mean? I think like banks, energy, insurance companies, industrials, things of that nature. Uh, and, and to me, the real question that I, that I want to kind of think about and I, I don't have an answer is, can we get a shift out of those high-priced um, FANG stocks with, into these other stocks without causing a market crash? Not even a market crash, a market crisis. And I don't have an answer. I'm hopeful that we can. I think that there's a good chance that we will get a violent internal rotation and that we will see times when those fangs are down 5 10% in a day and the banks on the other side, which are a lot smaller, and, and that's one of the things that you need to realize is the companies on the other side are much smaller. There's going to be no liquidity for them to be able to buy any. And you'll see like energy, I can't remember what the stat is, but at one point it was what, 20% of the S&P, something like that, and it's now 2%. These stocks are tiny. And when money starts flowing out of those fangs into these other names, the potential for them to rip and just fly is huge. And I think that will be the thing that I'm watching for in 2022 is the potential for a violent internal rotation out of fangs into real economy stocks. Kevin, on the day of that rotation, when growth stocks and big tech stocks sell off huge, the money flows into the reflation trades, energy, financials, industrials. On that day, if that day comes in 2022, I have a feeling that bond yields would probably be rising <laughs> because of uh, you know th growth is hot, inflation yeah. is hot. Why do you want to own bonds? And yet, over the past six months, despite the fact that we've seen inflation continue to accelerate to the upside, Bond yields have actually uh, um, they've actually gone down. And in fact, um, uh, Darius Dale pointed this out on Twitter. Over the past six months, TLT has actually performed outperformed SPY. What have you made of the uh, overperformance of bonds, which have a fixed coupon? They're paid in dollars. Dollars are being inflated away. Inflation is very high. You would think that they would be selling off, but actually, uh, people are buying bonds. The yield curve is flattening. People are worried about slowing growth, slowing inflation. Your thoughts. So, Jack, great question. And it, it is kind of amazing, isn't it, that we were taping this on Friday and we just had one of the highest CPI prints since 1982, and yet the, the bond market doesn't seem to care. And I know a lot of the bond bulls are, are saying, well, look, there you go. We, you know, If that's not going to kill it, what's going to kill it? Um, one of the things that I, I, I find most fascinating is that when you watch the big institutional fixed income managers talk about how they're pricing bonds and what they're expecting. You'll hear them talk about the terminal rate. And the terminal rate is in essence the, the highest rate they think that the Fed's gonna be able to raise rates before the economy rolls over. And one of the things that I think is happening is that bond managers are assuming the terminal rate has actually come down because of the increased amount of debt in the system. 
So what does that mean? That means that they are increasingly believing that the Fed will raise rates uh, 100 basis points or whatever the number is, and then the economy will roll over, and then the Fed will be forced to lower rates. And even inflation, let's talk about inflation. Everyone's, you know, complaining or not complaining, uh, warning about inflation and worried about it. And we hear all these, uh, these, you know, Larry Summers and, and uh, uh, Mohammed El-Aryan all talking about how the Fed's made a colossal error and how this is the end of the world. And then you go look at inflation swaps or you look at infl- uh, break-evens, inflation break-evens, mm-hmm. and all of the worry is in the first two years. There's like the, the, the curve is inverted. If you look at 30-year, you know, inflation swaps, they barely have risen. So what that means is the market is telling you the, that they're not concerned about long-term inflation. They're concerned about short-term inflation. And so the market, uh, there's been a lot of pushback on the Fed when, when the Fed has said that this inflation is transitory. But to some extent, the market is agreeing with the Federal Reserve. If it wasn't transitory, we would see a situation where they would expect longer-dated inflation swaps to rise more than the shorter-dated ones, or at least for them to all go up together. And they're not. They're going up you know, at the front end a lot more. So going back to, to your question about uh, what, how, how do I resolve that and, and how, does, how does this play out in 2022, I think that what you're going to find is that the market is going to come to a realization that they are incorrect about the terminal funds rate, meaning that how high the economy, how high the Federal Reserve will raise rates before they roll over the economy. And when that happens, everything will have to get repriced and the long end will actually get just destroyed, uh, meaning that the bonds will go down and up in yield. Now, why am I so confident? Um, Let me explain to you why I think this will occur in 2022. In 1982 or 1981, Volcker broke the back of inflation through raising rates. We had a situation where um, the markets were very convinced that inflation was going to run forever and that there was nothing you could do to stop it. There was a fellow by the name of Henry Kaufman that worked for Solomon Brothers. He was known as the Dr. Doom. He was the original Dr. Doom. Uh, and he kept forecasting higher and higher inflation and believed that you couldn't do anything to stop. And then, you know, uh, Volcker came and he raised rates and he, and he broke the back of inflation and he set in motion the next 40 years of disinflation. And this disinflation was... Uh, stick handled by the Federal Reserve controlling the economy almost entirely through monetary policy. So what does that mean? So when we had a a recession, the Federal Reserve came and lowered rates and they encouraged more spending and more borrowing and they got the economy going again until we got a little bit too much inflation and then they slowed it down again with rates and we kept doing this over and over again. And what this encouraged was more and more private debt. And and because there was more and more private debt, we had every single time the rate uh, that we needed to raise rates to slow down the economy was less and less. And and that's what what occurred um, through these four decades. Until finally we hit the great financial crisis. And what happened was we put the rate down to zero. 
And not only was zero not, uh, it, it couldn't restart the economy, they actually had to go and try extraordinary monetary measures to try to revive the economy, meaning that they, they said, okay, zero is not good enough. And I, and I don't know if anyone remembers, but we used to talk about the shadow rate all the time, meaning that what is the implied rate based upon the amount of quantitative easing that was being done that showed that it was negative 300 basis points or whatever it was. Um, and, and the thing about this is during this entire period, including the great financial crisis, we never, never used fiscal policy to try to fix the economy. Yes, there was a tiny little bit of it done in the, in the initial stages of the great financial crisis, but very quickly after that, the Tea Party came and it has actually made worse. They, they in essence, made it so that there was less spending uh, during the time when we were trying to revive the economy. And that's when we had Bernanke sitting there saying, please, please spend. We can't be the only ones doing it. And then this is part of the reason that the, the recovery was so shallow and was so terrible was because we had this private sector credit creation and the government, instead of it going and doing a counter cyclical fiscal creation, it actually went and did the same. It was doing private sector fiscal you know, contraction as well at the same time by spending less. Now, COVID comes along, and not only that, we've had the past 10 years to study this, and we understand this differently. And although everyone forgets now, back in 2020, in March, everyone, well, not everyone, most people were extremely bearish and extremely worried about deflation. They thought there was no way the government could fill this hole. There was, we were going to about to get this massive, you know, deflationary collapse and it was going to feed upon itself. And I kept saying, listen, the government can fill the hole. Just, you'd be surprised, be careful. And now it's very obvious that the government can fill the hole and they filled it by through fiscal means. And I would argue that they actually, not only did they fill the hole, they did more. They actually probably spent a little more than they needed. And whether it was from a social um, kind of basis, whether it was needed or not is a different matter, but it happened. And if you look on the macro economy, we have inflation. And part of that is because the government did so much fiscal. Now, this, um, a lot of people still believe this is a sugar high and that this is, this is never going to happen again. I believe that what this has done is shown the uh, electorate and the society that we can create inflation wherever we want. And, or sorry, we can create economic activity and, and, and stop deflation whenever we want. And I, I, I'm actually a very sympathetic to MMT, not from a basis of the political choices that it's making, but in terms of how it explains how the economy works. And if you think back to the great financial crisis, we, at that time, we listened to Carmen Rogoff, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff about that book and that said, you know, we can't spend, we're going to have a financial crisis if we spend anytime you go over 100% of debt to GDP, you get this collapse and blah, 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 blah. Well, look at Japan. Japan's got 225% debt to GDP. They still have another collapse. And not only that, look at the COVID example. We just went and had a crisis that we were able to spend and we didn't end up having financial crisis. In fact, we had just the opposite. We had inflationary problems. We did too much and we created inflation. Kevin, I might add, J Japan, definitely no, uh, no crash you know, since uh, 1990 to what, 2005, but growth and inflation have been anemic, you would, you would say, I, right? I, Yes, I would agree, but don't. But that's not their argument. 
Their argument is that this will cause a financial collapse. And they've always argued this, and they've always said at a certain point, you're going to get a financial collapse. And I've always believed that that MMT is more on the ball, that, that the reality is that we are never as a society or government financially constrained. We are constrained by inflation. And so, uh, so I, I, when I looked at March of 2020 and I said, listen, we're not, if, if we have the political will, we can fix this. And we did have the political will, and it was just like World War II, it was a, it was a world footing. Now, I think what you're going to find is that we're going to get, um, in, in the decades to come, anytime that the economy slows or we get into any sorts of problems, we will be quicker with the fiscal. And this is ultimately why I am an inflation bull at heart, because we have realized that we can create economic... Um, growth at any time. Now, you might argue that the economic growth is nominal, and I completely would buy that. I'm not trying to say we can make real economic growth, but I believe that we can make economic growth. So when I look at what's going to happen over the next years and decades, I don't worry about a deflationary collapse. I worry about an inflationary you know, spiral the other way. And the reason I worry about that is that human beings, we always take things too far. We took monetarism too far and we took rates from, you know, 15% in 1982 down to zero. Not only that, in Europe, they went to negative because they were so, you know, Milton Friedman would be rolling over in his grave if he saw what was happening to monetarism there. So what I think is going to happen is we're going to have more of an inflationary bid than we expect from the underlying tendency for us to do more fiscal whenever we get into trouble. So from a secular long-term perspective, that is one of the reasons that I'm most bullish on inflation. And I don't believe the market has understood that yet. And I, and I used to be the 2% inflation used to be a kind of a ceiling. I believe that it's going to be a floor. And then the moment we get down to there, you're going to find that we're going to get more fiscal. But the real reason that I'm most excited and most bullish about next year in terms of inflation and how the market is getting it wrong is that we have hit a point where we've thought that private sector credit creation cannot happen. Meaning that in, in, two, in the 2008 great financial crisis, everyone thought that the government was going to do quantitative easing. That money was going to go into the banking system and then it was going to get lent out and, 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 and uh, it was going to create economic activity and create inflation. We learned that obviously that doesn't happen. The government putting money into the system, it just sits on the bank's balance sheet. It gets sloshed around. The velocity goes down, which it really kind of, velocity is a dumb measure anyways, but in essence, the velocity goes down. It doesn't create any, you know, quantitative easing doesn't create any actual real activity in the real economy. So one of the things that we've kind of thought to ourselves, well, that, that side doesn't matter. And so the only real way is to make inflation now is through the fiscal means. And there's two ways you, that, that inflation is created or, or even money is just created. One is for the government to spend it into existence. Now, 10 years ago, we didn't believe that one would work. Now, all of a sudden, we believe that one will work. And not only that, we believe that's really the only one that works. So you see all these market strategists and all these pundits talking about the fact that fiscal is getting slowed down. So therefore, you should sell risk assets and you should be, you know, the economy is going to roll over because there's not going to be stimulus checks in our, in our wallets. It's kind of ironic that at the very time that everyone has finally accepted that fiscal creates money, we have forgotten that private sector can create money as well. 
And so what do I mean by that? I mean that in the old days, we used to go and lower interest rates because we would encourage more borrowing. So people, you know, you lower the interest rate, you person would go out, you know, buy a house or, or take out a loan for a business. And then we hit this point where we couldn't encourage that anymore. So we've almost forgotten and thought that it'll never exist and never work. I contend that once we get the all clear on the other side of this virus, like the, uh, the, the, the coronavirus, and it's actually gone, we're going to see a situation where the consumer balance sheets are in the best shape they've been in in decades. Okay, so they're going to be going out and they're going to be making households and, and spending and borrowing. I look at the millennials and although everyone loves to talk about the baby boomers because the baby boomers control the most assets. If you look at them in terms of different groups, in terms of their sizes, the millennials are actually by far the largest group right now. They have not, especially in the States, they have not gone and made households at the same rate as, before, as other generations. And a lot of people say the millennials are different. Well, listen, I'll take the other side of that trade. They're human beings like the rest of us. They're not different. They're just a little bit behind. They're going to make households. They're going to go do the exact same things that every other generation has done. People forget, but the yuppies of the 80s were the hippies of the 60s. And so the millennials are going to do, be no different. And I suspect they're going to be spending a lot of money in 2022 going out and they're going to be making household for doing household formation, having kids, doing all those things. So there's going to be a huge bid on the consumer side. And then on the other side, the corporate side, people will talk about how corporate uh, balance sheets have a lot of debt on them. And that is correct. But 2020 was a record year in terms of corporate issuance of debt. And the reason they did that was because they were scared about the virus and they needed to have a big cushion of cash. So although debt is high, corporate cash is also high. I look at the globalization of the past, um, kind of what is it two decades really that it's been occurring and I think to myself what's going to happen is the coronavirus is going to make people realize that they these the globalization and the relying on sub supply chains was actually quite um wasn't as, as, as riskless as they thought. And so we're gonna see more and more reshoring back to America, North America or Europe, wherever it is. All of this is gonna mean more CapEx spending. And so we're gonna see in um, corporations spending to build factories, warehouses in the States, in Canada, in Europe. We're gonna see all of this. So to me, the part that a lot of the bond market participants are missing is that I think we're gonna actually have a real economy, like a, 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 a non-financial, good old fashioned, strong economy in 2022. And I suspect when they, when this, when finally kicks in and they realize this, we're going to see a dramatic repricing in bonds and also a dramatic violent rotation out of the growth stocks, which are the longest duration uh, stock assets into more value type names. Wow. Kevin, that, thank you so much for that. That, that was uh, beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, I wish we could go on. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your time, your insights. Where can people find you on Twitter and, and you know, the, the Macro Tourist? Sure. Thanks for It's great being with you today, Jack. Um, you can go check out my uh, letter at themacrotourist.com. Uh, if you want, feel free to send me an email, Kevin at the Macro Tourist. I'll send you some recent samples. Or you can go check me out at Twitter at Kevin Muir, M-U-I-R. Thanks for your time. Wonderful. Thank you, Kevin.